Hello, welcome to a new episode of Overmore's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today we will include on the shelves of our library two books from two different ages and two different worlds. So far we have looked in particular in these podcast episodes to books that have to do with the end of worlds or with the beginning of new worlds, with apocalypses and with cosmogonies. Today, we will consider another problem relating to worlding. So another problem with the activity of creating a world around ourselves where we can live, a world that makes sense and yet remains artificial. The problem is, how is it possible that sometimes we take the society around us, the power structures around us, the imagination around us as the only possible ones? How come sometimes human beings decide to accept even their own subjection, even their own pain, as if there was no alternative? These are the questions that are observed by Etienne de la Boissy and Max Stirner, the two protagonists of today's episode. We will look at Etienne de la Boissy's 1577 book, Discourse on Voluntary Servitude, or, to be honest, first published in 1577 after the death of the author, and Max Stirner's book, The Ego in Its Own, published in 1844. We will begin by looking at Etienne de la Boissy, not only because the book was published first in the 16th century as opposed to the 19th, but also because Etienne wrote it when he was incredibly young, at only 18 years old. If we wish to find this author at work, this very young man writing the discourse on voluntary servitude, we have to follow him in his own time. We have to move back to France, back to the 40s of the 16th century. What was it like to live in France in the 16th century? What kind of atmosphere would lead a very young man from an aristocratic family, such as Etienne de la Boissy, highly educated, to write one of the very first books that explicitly champion anarchism? Life in Europe at that time, I think is fairly possible to summarize it as very interesting and very difficult. Very interesting because a lot was going on, Just think of the printing press. Just think of the so-called discovery of the new world for the Europeans. Think of the Reformation and all the Renaissance in Italy. The scientific revolution was about to begin, but also very difficult because the wheels of history in the 16th century are traveling fast, but they're traveling so fast because they are almost gliding over a blood-soaked road. Europe at that time was traversed by some of the bloodiest wars before the 20th century. The wars of religion of the 16th century lasted for almost a century and killed millions, displaced millions and ravaged countries all over the continent. The wars had to do with, apparently, a theological dispute between Catholics and Protestants. But what was at the beginning, seemingly only a religious problem, rapidly developed into a social, a political and a military confrontation This military confrontation was just beginning at the time when Etienne de la Boissy wrote his book. So let's get back to him and follow him in his aristocratic family, in his golden life. Well, the first thing that happens to him is that he loses both his parents very young and he is given to the care of an uncle. But his uncle immediately recognizes that the young Etienne is exceptionally gifted and so helps him to get into the parliament of Bordeaux at a very young age. Once in the parliament, Etienne is, has very clear ideas about what he wants to do there. He has one main mission in mind. He looks around and decides that it's time to reconcile Catholics 
and Protestants. So in the Parliament he champions this particular thesis, of course he's in a very minoritarian position, but in doing that he wins immediately the admiration of Michel de Montaigne, the very famous French philosopher who will be Etienne de la Boissy's best friend, possibly lover, and after Etienne's death will be the first publisher of Etienne de la Boissy's discourse. Etienne will die in Montaigne's arm at the age of 32. Why was Montaigne so impressed with a short text written by Etienne at the age of 18? I think the best way to treat the text of a very young person is to treat it with the utmost respect. And so this time I will read abundantly from the text. I will let the text speak for itself. Let's begin with the question of the book. Well, the book is about one simple question. How is it possible that the masses made of the many are ruled tyrannically by the power of the few? How is it possible that one master can control a hundred slaves, one tyrant a million subjects? A handful of billionaires can control billions of others. Etienne writes, I should like merely to understand how it happens that so many men, so many villages, so many cities, so many nations, sometimes suffer under a single tyrant who has no other power than the power they give him, who is able to harm them only to the extent to which they have the willingness to bear with him, who could do them absolutely no injury unless they preferred to put up with him rather than contradict him. It is so common that one must grieve the more and wonder the less at the spectacle of a million men serving in wretchedness, not constrained by a greater multitude than they, but simply, it would seem, delighted and charmed by the name of one man alone, whose power they need not fear, for he is evidently the one person whose qualities they cannot admire because of, in, of his inhumanity and brutality towards them. This is the opening question of the book. Etienne tries to understand how is this possible and tries out a few options. He wonders, maybe it's because the masses are masses of cowards. People are too afraid of the power of those who rule over them. No, this cannot be, says Etienne. And let's read what he says exactly. Shall we call subjection to such a leader cowardice? Shall we say that those who serve him are cowardly and faint-hearted? Ah, if two, if three, if four do not defend themselves from the one, we might call that circumstance surprising, but nevertheless conceivable. But if a hundred, if a thousand, endure the caprice of a single man, should we not rather say that they lack not the courage, but the desire to rise against him, and that such an attitude indicates indifference rather than cowardice? What monstrous vice, then, is this, which does not even deserve to be called cowardice, a vice from which no term can be found vile enough, which nature herself disavows and our tongues refuse to name. So it's not cowardice. It's something close to indifference, but it's a special type of indifference. It's not indifference to the sufferance of others. It's indifference to one's own suffering. How is this possible? This is the real miracle of power, the real mystery. And Etienne has a real disbelief in front of this situation, the enslavement of the masses to the few. And he speaks to them directly, or to be more precise, he speaks to us directly. And he writes, Poor, wretched and stupid peoples, determined on your own misfortune and blind to your own good. 
You live in such a way that you cannot claim a single thing as your own. And it would seem that you consider yourselves lucky to be loaned your property, your families and your very lives. All this havoc, this misfortune, this ruin, descends upon you, not from alien foes, but from the one enemy whom you yourselves render as powerful as he is, for whom you go bravely to war, for whose greatness you do not refuse to offer your own bodies unto death. He has indeed nothing more than the power that you confer upon him to destroy you. Where has he acquired enough eyes to spy upon you if you do not provide them yourselves? How can he have so many arms to beat you with if he does not borrow them from you? And the feet that trample down your cities, where does he get them if they are not your own? How does he have any power over you except through you? What could he do to you if you yourselves did not connive with the thief who plunders you, if you were not accomplices of the murderer who kills you, if you were not traitors to yourselves. You sow your crops in order that he may ravage them. You install and furnish your homes to give him goods to pillage. You rear your daughters that he may gratify his lust. You bring up your children in order that he may confer upon them the greatest privilege he knows, to be led into his battles, to be delivered to butchery to be made the servants of his greed and the instruments of his vengeance. You weaken yourselves in order to make him the stronger and the mighter to hold you in check. From all these indignities, such as the very beasts of the field would not endure, you can deliver yourselves if you try. Not by taking action. Just resolve to serve no more and you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like the great Colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight and break into pieces. This passage here, even though constitutes bibliographically, so to say, an example of proto-anarchism, so before anarchism proper, is at the same time an example of post-anarchism. Etienne de la Boissy understands the incredible psychological nature of power, but also begins to smell a strange fascination for power from the part of those who are subjected to it. A certain complicity between the slave and their masters. And the fact that we have to work precisely there, at this psychological level, to be able to ignite something close to freedom. Banetien is not content with this first examination of the problem, so he tries out another possible objection. He says, well, maybe the masses are so enamored with the few, they accept their power willingly, even if it costs them their own lives, because the few are naturally endowed with some special abilities. But Etienne dismisses the second objection immediately. And he writes, I'll read again. If in distributing her gifts, nature has favored some more than others with respect to body or spirit, she has nevertheless not planned to place us within this world as if it were a field of battle and has not endowed the stronger or the cleverer in order that they may act like armed brigands in a forest and attack the weaker. One should rather conclude that in distributing larger shares to some and smaller shares to others, nature has intended to give occasion for brotherly love to become manifest, some of us having the strength to give help to others who are in need of it. Hence, since this kind mother has given us the whole world as a dwelling place, has lodged us in the same house, has fashioned us according to the same model, 
so that in beholding one another we may almost recognize ourselves? And since she has tried in every way, not so much to associate us as to make us one organic whole, then there could be no further doubt that we are all naturally free inasmuch as we are all comrades. Accordingly, it should not enter the mind of anyone that nature has placed some of us in slavery since she has actually created us all in one likeness. In this passage, it feels like we are reading almost an ancient philosopher, but also it feels a bit like we are reading a young Marx or a young Bakunin. But Etienne de la Boissy, in a certain way, psychologically speaking, is even more refined than them. Because he finds something amazing in this situation, the wonderful and philosophical wealth of this text is particularly in this amazement. You know, philosophy is born from amazement, it is said, thauma. But thauma, amazement in Greek means, yes, wonder, but also terror and disgust. So Etienne sees this wonderful, miraculous, disgusting thing of power being exerted over willing subjects. And talking about willingness, Etienne de la Boissy considers also the possibility that those in power might get there through legal means, so to say. And he writes, I read, There are three kinds of tyrants. Some receive their proud position through elections by the people, others by force of arms, others by inheritance. Although I do perceive that there is some difference among these three types of tyranny, as for stating a preference, I cannot grant there is any. For although the means of coming into power differ, still the method of ruling is practically the same. Those who are elected act as if they were breaking bullocks. Those who are conquerors make the people their prey. Those who are hares plan to treat them as if they were their natural slaves. And at this point, Etienne is satisfied enough with having responded to the objections that he wants to get to the point of the problem. What is it that makes people so mad as to wish their own enslavement? Well, he says it must be a very strong force. It must be something that is capable of making people love their own servitude. I read. It is incredible how as soon as a people becomes subject, it promptly falls into such complete forgetfulness of its freedom that it can hardly be roused to the point of regaining it. Obeying so easily and so willingly that one is led to say, on beholding such a situation, that this people has not so much lost its liberty as won its enslavement. So what is this force? For Etienne, fundamentally, it is two forces. First, the force of habit, and second, the force of property. Let me read again from the text, beginning with the part on habit, what he calls custom. He writes, it cannot be denied that nature is influential in shaping us to her will and making us reveal our rich or meager endowment. Yet it must be admitted that she has less power over us than custom, for the reason that native endowment, no matter how good, is dissipated unless encouraged. Whereas environment always shapes us in its own way, whatever that may be, in spite of nature's gifts. Men are like handsome race horses who first bite the bit and later like it. Similarly, men will grow accustomed to the idea that they have always been in subjection, that their fathers lived in that way. They will think they are obliged to suffer this evil and will persuade themselves based on the idea that it has always been that way. Etienne de la Boissy is almost a post-structuralist here. 
you can really get the nuance of the influence of the social environment over the psychological level of elaboration of a world. But the force of habit doesn't work all by itself. It needs some reinforcement sometimes. For example, by propaganda, one particular kind of propaganda. And I'll read. It has always happened that tyrants, in order to strengthen their power, have made every effort to train their people not only in obedience and servility towards them, but also in adoration. Propaganda, adoration, custom, great forces. But the other one is property. Custom is that moment in which our ability to imagine otherwise is finally amputated of its limbs. And property is the process through which his amputation really takes place. Etienne offers a very clear description of a particular system through which power enacts itself and the miracle of obedience is enacted. What he describes today would be described fairly accurately as a trickle-down economic system. Only for Etienne, this is not a force of social progress, but it is the very mechanism of enslavement. And let me read from it. I come now to a point which is, in my opinion, the mainspring and the secret of domination, the support and foundation of tyranny. Whoever thinks that armed guards, sentries, the placing of the watch, serve to protect and shield tyrants is, in my judgment, completely mistaken. These are used, it seems to me, more for ceremony and a show of force than for any reliance placed upon them. The archers forbid the entrance to the palace to the poorly dressed who have no weapons, but not to the well-armed who can carry out some plot. It is not the troops on horseback, it is not the companies afoot, it is not arms that defend the tyrant. But consider that only four or five men maintain the dictator, four or five who keep the country in bondage to them, four or five who have always had access to the ear of the tyrant. And these five have 500 who profit under them. The 500 maintain under them 5,000 whom they promote in rank in order that they may serve as instruments of avarice and cruelty, exempt from law and punishment. The consequence of all this is fatal indeed. A hundred thousand, even millions, cling to the tyrant by this cord to which they are tied. In short, when the point is reached, through big favors or little ones, that large profits or small are obtained under a tyrant, there are found almost as many people to whom tyranny seems advantageous as those to whom liberty would seem desirable. Whenever a ruler makes himself a dictator, all the wicked dregs of the nation and I do not mean the pack of petty thieves who in a republic are unimportant in evil or good. But all those who are corrupted by burning ambition or extraordinary greed, these gather around him and support him in order to have a share in the booty and to constitute themselves petty chiefs under the big tyrant. Nothing makes men so subservient to a tyrant's cruelty as property does. So, if this is the diagnosis, that we inflict upon ourselves our own enslavement, because without our obedience, the power of the few would be nothing. Without our active support, their power would just reveal itself as an illusion. Then if this is the diagnosis, what is the therapy? Etienne is clear. We need to just withdraw our consent, disentangle ourselves 
no longer recognized in the conventional symbols of power anything more than just superstitions. When our attention is diverted from them, when our consensus to the creation of sense, thanks to which their power is sustained, the moment our consensus is withdrawn, that moment their power immediately disintegrates. After all, Etienne de la Boissy concludes, the natural state in which we are born is freedom. So Etienne ends his incendiary anarchist pamphlet by calling to look up to heaven for guidance to enact our radical disobedience and our disentanglement from power. And I'll read the last few lines of the book. Let us therefore learn, while there is still time, let us learn to do good. Let us raise our eyes to heaven for the sake of our honor, for the very love of virtue, or to speak wisely, for the love and praise of God Almighty, who is the infallible witness of our deeds and the just judge of our faults. As for me, I truly believe I am right, since there is nothing so contrary to a generous and loving God as tyranny. I believe he has reserved in a separate spot in hell some very special punishments for tyrants and their accomplices. Here ends the short book by Etienne de la Boissy, The Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. But this is just the beginning of the long trajectory of anarchism, which is still very much going. Another important moment in the development of anarchism comes at the hand of another unique character. Unique like Etienne de la Boissy, the 18-year-old rhetorician and philosopher, but also unique in accordance with his own philosophy that is all about uniqueness. I'm talking about Johann Kaspar Schmidt, better known as Max Stirner. Born in 1806, he lives through the great moment of German philosophy in the 19th century. He lives in Berlin. He's friends with Karl Marx. Well, not really friends with Marx, as we will see. Friedrich Engels, Bruno Bauer, Ludwig Feuerbach. We have no pictures of him. We only have two sketches, and they're both by Friedrich Engels. And they depict him in one of the meetings of this group of intellectuals that used to gather in a bar. We can see in the sketches that Johann Kaspar Schmidt is indeed Stirner, his nickname, which means big forehead. Stirner had a shortish life and definitely not the happiest. He got married twice and his first wife died. His second wife soon dumped him. To be honest, she did have a point in dumping him. Stirner decides to open a business, to open a milk delivery business, convince his wife to invest in this business all her money. The business bankrupts and she abandons him immediately. And when she will be interviewed later on by a Sterner scholar, she will just say that Sterner was the least trustworthy man she had ever met. And she will refuse even to continue talking about him. After this bankruptcy, Sterner is in a bad place. He cannot find employment. He begins to work just a little bit as a tutor in a private school for girls. Then he's sent to jail for debts. And then he dies of an infected insect bite. He dies at the age of 49 in 1856. At his funeral, only one person will attend, only Bruno Bauer, one of his frenemies, one of those philosophers that he had attacked violently and that had violently attacked him. And for a long time, Stirner will remain a divisive character, especially for Marxists. Marx dedicates a big part of his book, The German Ideology, to attack Stirner, whom he calls Saint Max. But divisive also in the world of anarchism. As we will see, Stirner will influence some of the most extreme fringes of anarchism. And the way in which he will influence them is through a book, The Ego and Its Own, the second book which we will insert on the shelves of our library. 
to look into the problem of how to reignite truly radical imagination of the world and of ourselves. The book is divided in two parts. The first is called Man, the second, Ego. The first part is dedicated to destroying the idea of what it means to be a human. Stirner looks at how the notion of what it is to be a proper human being has been one of the main tools for enslavement devised by philosophy. And he deconstructs this idea bit by bit until he gets to the second part, ego or the unique one, in which he tries to understand where else we can go in the post-anthropocene. So after the age of humanity, he begins once again by looking at what it means to say and to think that there is such a thing as a proper human being, that there is a particular way of being something. For example, a particular way of being a human, but also a particular way of being a male or a female, a husband or a wife or a good patriot or a worker. Stirner looks at how we have created these ideas, these names, humanity, masculinity, citizenship, and so on and so forth, and we have made them into living ghosts. These ideas have taken a life of their own. They've become spooks. And these spooks haunt our imagination. They hover over us. Liberating oneself from the spooks is for Stirner the way forward towards a real attainment of freedom. As long as we believe that there are really some categories in the world which are naturally there and to which we need to conform, until then, whichever social progress we will achieve, we will still remain entirely enslaved. We will be always condemned to a life of voluntary servitude to feed the tyranny of these ideas. Stirner says, what is good for God is good for me. And what is properly God's, Stirner, by the way, studied theology at university, is also properly mine. And what is it that is properly God's, he asks? The fact of being beyond definitions. God, in negative theology, for example, is that thing for which no word is sufficient. No name can hold him. He is everything and beyond everything. He is more than existence itself. Stirner says, like God, I am nothing but I am the creative nothing out of which everything originates. So Stirner looks at himself, at that particular thing that other people call Max or other people call German, or they say that person is a male or is a philosopher or anything, he's alive, he's a human. When he looks at himself, he sees nothing and he sees a creative nothing, a nothing that transcends all names, but from which all the names of the world can emerge. All possible worlds are already contained within it. This thing is, for Stirner, the unique one. That's how he calls it. And this unique one is the owner. This unique one owns the world the unique one creates. The unique one is the owner of their own identity. Whichever definition they wish to bestow upon themselves, it is their decision, as long, he warns us, as long as they don't allow that definition to ever become yet another spook, to haunt their imagination and to rule them like a tyrant. The unique one has a supreme power of self-definition. But how can these unique ones live in the world? How is it possible that somebody who is so radically free, how can they associate with others? It's very simple, says Max Stirner, and this is the way in which most friendships already happen in the world. This unique one, this ego, 
is capable of entering into a union of other egos, of other unique ones. He calls this type of association, this type of anarchist association, the union of egoists. It sounds like a bit of a paradox. The egoists, the unique ones, associate with each other, not because they are all German or white or black or Muslims or Christians or male or gay or straight. They don't associate because they belong to a spook, but they associate because they need each other. They associate out of a mutual interest and out of a mutual interest, they may also decide to part ways when it is an appropriate time and then to reconvene without having to swear allegiance. Stirner says, I will always find comrades to join me without having to swear on my same flag. You can imagine why Stirner was seen with such suspicion at the time when he wrote this book. And also you can imagine why he has been so influential. In particular, we could see that a type of philosophical anarchism was influenced by Stirner. Some people speculate that Nietzsche himself had actually read and elaborated on Stirner's ideas. Nietzsche, of course, rejects this accusation, says that he never heard of it. But most interestingly, Stirner influenced the illegalists. The book of Stirner was the favorite read of groups such as the Bono Gang. The Bono Gang were the people who invented bank robberies using an automobile. He influenced Renzo Novatore, the great Italian illegalist. He influenced Alfredo Bonanno, a contemporary insurrectionist, Wolfie Landstreicher, contemporary American anarchist. He influenced also very unlikely anarchists, such as Ernest Jünger. Etienne de la Boissy and Stirner come from different worlds, but somehow their question is fundamentally the same. How is it possible that we accept to be enslaved? To a tyrant, says Etienne de la Boissy. To an idea, a name and an identity, says Max Stirner. How is it possible that we cannot sometimes shackle these chains and think of a new world? It is because of habit, says uh, Etienne de la Boissy, and property. But it's also, says Stirner, because of a philosophical problem. Because we have not recognized that fundamentally what we are is a creative nothing out of which everything originates. Both Etienne and Stirner work on a particular field, not political struggle proper, but a pre-political struggle. The moment in which we define what we fundamentally are. Where they work is the moment in which we define ourselves as subjects and on the basis of what we think we are and the way in which we understand the world around ourselves metaphysically for what it fundamentally is, their politics is already decided. We will continue talking about this, the political aspect of the work of Etienne de la Boissy and Max Stirner. And we will do it in the next episode with a politics expert, professor of political theory, Saul Newman, who is the main theorist of post-anarchism and is currently writing on political theology. So please follow me for an interview with Saul Newman here from the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Goodbye.